Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we take a look back at the start of the pandemic and talk about where we stand now. The COVID-19 pandemic took hold in the U.S. about a year ago. On February 3, 2020, the Trump administration declared a public health emergency due to the novel coronavirus outbreak, just days after the World Health Organization declared a global health emergency. In March, the nation went into a voluntary lockdown that lasted weeks. Initially, cases were slow to spread in Arizona. Here's what our show sounded like on March 13, 2020. As of this taping on Thursday, there were fewer than a dozen confirmed cases of coronavirus in Arizona. But that number is likely to change quickly. At the start of the week, State Health Director Kara Christ said Arizona should expect to see thousands of cases. Early on, public health officials had a hard time anticipating how widespread and ultimately deadly the virus would become. We talked with Pima County Chief Medical Officer Francisco Garcia in early March 2020. Is COVID-19 more deadly than the flu? Because we have so many flu cases. Hard question to answer uh, with factual data today. Um, But what I can tell you is that two years ago, um, we had over 200 deaths in Pima County that were associated with influenza. Do I think this is going to be significantly different? Probably not a whole heck of a lot different. So, you know, the story's yet to be told. That story changed quickly. By late March, University of Arizona researcher Mike Warby told us to prepare for things to get much worse, comparing the coronavirus to the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. This outbreak is uh, shaping up to have the potential to look a lot more like that pandemic than I was hoping. And one of the things that I think people maybe don't quite uh, appreciate is how much the impact of this is going to be shaped by our response to it. Warabi leads the UA Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. In that March 2020 interview, he stressed what a difference a strategic, public health-driven lockdown could make on the spread of the virus. It doesn't have to be forever. This This is the important point, that if we're aggressive up front for a matter of weeks, we can buy ourselves time to get in the position that we need to be to then chase down uh, cases of this virus before they can spread to lots of other people. But that didn't happen, as President Trump and governors in many states were eager to restart the economic engines that stalled in March and April. Uh, In Arizona, given our specific Arizona situation, we have had later timing and a lighter touch in placing restrictions on our economy. In Arizona, Governor Doug Ducey reopened the state in early May, lifting restrictions on hair salons, restaurants, and other businesses. At the time, he cited positive public health metrics to support the reopening. So this is a green light to make additional decisions or for our first step forward. But by July, the state was leading the world in new COVID-19 infections. Arizona remained a hot spot for weeks, logging more than 3,000 new infections every day. 
When cases began to rise again at the start of the holiday season, Governor Ducey acknowledged the pandemic had taken a significant toll. It's been eight months since I issued a public health emergency in the state of Arizona. And I know many in our state are asking, when will it end? The answer is, that's not on the horizon. Arizona and our nation remain in a public health emergency and getting back to normal isn't in the cards right now. As new cases rose quickly during the holidays, Ducey resisted repeated calls from public health officials to strengthen restrictions on businesses and gatherings in order to slow the virus spread. In December and January, Arizona's daily new case rate was three times that of the summer spike, with a single-day high of more than 17,000 cases recorded on January 3rd. Last week, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control said Arizona ranked third in the country for COVID-19 deaths per capita over the previous week, and had led the nation and the world in deaths and cases at times during January. To date, Arizona has recorded more than 15,800 deaths due to COVID-19. We asked University of Arizona virologist Felicia Goodrum to talk us through why it was so hard to know the full scope of the pandemic early on. Despite public optimism last spring that the pandemic was going to be over in a couple of months, she says it quickly became clear that wasn't going to happen. There are a couple aspects to the actual virus that make that very difficult. And one is it's how contagious it is and how easily it is spread. But then as we started learning later in the summer last year is that people were spreading virus and making virus that could be transmitted for many days prior to showing any symptoms, if they showed any symptoms at all. And that wasn't something we were really expecting based on what we knew about SARS and MERS, the cousins to this virus. And so uh, it made it a lot more difficult to control this pandemic. Having said that, Having had a more proactive public health strategy nationwide would have certainly helped to limit the number of infections and would have put us in a better place than where we are right now. The U.S. has the highest death toll of any country in the world. And so I think it's really hard to look at that and think, well, that we couldn't have done something more. It seems like uh, decreasing case numbers have prompted some places to open back up, a phrase that we didn't even think about a year ago, understanding. And in some cases, we've seen, as soon as we get those reopenings, a new spike in cases. How do we break that cycle? Because people want to go back to something like what we had before. Well, the argument I've been making since the beginning of the pandemic is that if we practice certain mitigation procedures, such as the masking and the distancing we can do a lot more with life. And so I think where we've really had the problem is when people rush in to go to bars um, where people aren't masked or where you're in really close proximity. And and so, you know, if we could just be a little bit more disciplined in saying, well, I'm going to have a few friends over in our backyard um, where we're going to be able to do the distancing and, you know, masking and things like that. It's it's not normal life, but it's a lot better than, than doing nothing. And I think that if 
you know, even with places opening back up, um, I think we've shown many places have been able to, especially workplaces, for example, I'm at the University of Arizona and our labs have been functioning for a long time. A lot of people in the lab and, and we're not spreading the virus, but we are doing solid mitigation, such as distancing and masking. And so those simple measures really do work with this virus and, and they're so important. And so if we can continue re-entering normal life and resuming some normal activities without um, giving up those aspects, I think we can do a lot better with keeping numbers under control and preventing the spikes. One of the things that people are really talking about right now are all these variants, three main ones. When it comes to viruses, I remember early on people were saying, we're going to see variants. How many variants have we seen? Because it seems like maybe there are a lot out there, they just aren't necessarily harmful to us. That's right. So viruses mutate and will create variants. That's just part of their normal life cycle. And the variants that we're seeing are ones that are having increased transmission or spread so that they're becoming the dominant variants. Now, in the U.S., we haven't been doing enough sequencing to really monitor all the variants that are emerging. And so we really know about these that are predominating in the population. The good news is, is that the vaccine is still largely effective against many of these variants. The vaccines have a little less efficacy against the South African variants and the Brazilian variants. But still, we have to put that in perspective because I know some people are saying, well, I'm not interested in getting the vaccine because these variants, it's not going to be worth it or they're not, they're not going to work. That's simply not true. The seasonal flu vaccine, which is highly effective, is really only on most years 40 to 60% effective. And so for us to have 95% effectiveness with the um, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines is just truly extraordinary. I mean, I, as a scientist, I sit absolutely in marvel of these vaccines. They are, are really so effective and so tremendously protective. Uh, just so people understand, you mentioned the UK variant, the South African variant, the Brazilian variant. Those variants didn't necessarily come from there. That's just where they were discovered in a lab due to testing, correct? Yes, exactly. When it comes to variants, does this likely mean that the COVID-19 pandemic, the SARS-CoV-2, is going to be extended in time? Yes, the variants, I think, really the greatest risk is that they will extend the pandemic potentially. And so we're really in an arms race right now to try to get people vaccinated. The more people we can get vaccinated and the more that we can reduce transmission of the virus by additional mitigation procedures, such as the hand washing, the distancing, and the masking, the more we can restrict variants emerging. And so the faster we get people vaccinated and, and reduce the number of COVID cases and, and SARS-CoV-2 transmission, the better off we will be with respect to um, variants and, and getting the pandemic actually to come to a, a close, if that's even possible. And I think the variants actually make it such that it may not be possible. And this may be a virus that we are actually dealing with for a very, very long time to come um, with having to sort of revaccinate people every few years. 
I guess that's why it's important to keep doing all the things you're supposed to be doing, washing your hands, social distancing, mask wearing, for at least a couple of weeks after you get that second dose uh, to really give your immune system time to get ramped up. Yes, it will take about two to three weeks after the vaccination to hit that 95% protection. So it's going to be very important in that interim that people continue for their own safety, the masking, distancing, hand washing. But then going forward, until we have really vaccinated that 65, 70% of the population, it's really important to continue the masking and distancing to protect all the unvaccinated. We have administered nearly 60 million vaccines, I think, with no really adverse side effects that can be attributed to the vaccine, um, other than some allergic reactions that are, that are treated on site and haven't resulted in hospitalizations. And so the vaccine is tremendously safe um, and effective, and it really is our only way to reach that herd immunity, which will truly allow us to reenter a much more normal life. What about kids? We know adults right now can get the vaccine, but what do we know about children at this point? It seems like they are less likely to exhibit symptoms of COVID-19, but they can be carriers. That's right. And a lot of that vaccine trials that have happened have not occurred in children below the age of 16. And so that's all now ongoing work. Um, and of course, children will be important um, to enter into the vaccination program because they're going to be the people who remain to be able to transmit the virus and they will be able to sort of sustain the pandemic. And so I'm hoping we'll start seeing the vaccination of children in the next few months. That was Felicia Goodrum, a virologist and professor of immunobiology at the University of Arizona. This week, we're taking a look back on the pandemic's impact to Arizona. At the start of the national lockdown last year, there were predictions that the pandemic's economic impact would be V-shaped, meaning it would take a dive but recover quickly. We've learned that hasn't been the case. Tim James is Director of Research and Consulting with the Seidman Research Institute at Arizona State University. We asked him to provide a status update on Arizona's economy. He says it's important to point out that the pandemic isn't over, so it's still a bit early to judge the full impact. We've gone through one or two quarters in 2020, which made the economy shrink quite significantly. But then it's recovered towards the end of the year, and the beginning of the year has been sort of like not you know quite good in terms of um, the bounce back. The V-shaped uh, recession that people had suggested might occur, I think is turning out on the basis of where we are so far to be not a good descriptor of what is happening. We certainly went down quite far, bounced back up relatively quickly in economics terms. But where we are now is we're entering a phase where there is a significant amount of what looks like it might be long-run unemployment and um, a reduction in terms of the size of the economy in absolute terms compared to, say, 2019. Your group has been tracking the economic impact of the pandemic for the last year. What are some of the main takeaways that you've found? With Arizona specifically in mind, I think the biggest changes have been in terms of the way that people interact with um, 
hospitality and leisure businesses. And so there's been a significant reduction in terms of, I, I think we all know this, a significant reduction in terms of people going out to restaurants, bars, social leisure type activities. Those areas of the economy have taken significant hits and they still are taking significant hits. I now think that what we will start to see is significant numbers of increased bankruptcies in those areas where businesses will just shutter and never reopen. Other areas of the economy have done you know, relatively well in terms of them being, it being in the middle of a global pandemic. You could argue that they've done remarkably well. Has it been long enough that people, the public, have changed their dining and entertainment habits and the industries may not recover quite in the same way that we've just gotten used to not going out for dinner or for drinks anymore. If I knew that and the answer to that, I'd probably be a very rich person in the short term. I think everybody's sort of guessing about whether people's behavior has changed permanently or is temporary in terms of whether they will start going back to their prior habits in terms of the number of times they went out, went to the theater, sports events, all those sorts of things. I just think it's very difficult to actually, for us to actually tell what the world will look like, say, in 2022 or 2023. I certainly think some things have changed forever. I mean, not just in terms of like social and leisure activities, but I think the way we shop, as it were, has changed fundamentally. A lot of retailers are going much more towards a kind of fulfillment center model. Um, and people ordering online and not so much them going into stores to buy things, but maybe just to browse and look at things. I think that's changed. You mentioned long-term unemployment last week. According to state numbers, there were close to 230,000 unduplicated unemployment claims through a number of different programs. Granted, that's a decrease from the high point of last year, but it's still extremely high when compared to 12 months, 15 months ago. What's it going to take to get people back to work who, through not necessarily any fault of their own, don't have a job? Well, I think the classic way that an economist would describe what's going on is we're going through a period of what you might call structural change. And the structural change is the the way that people interact and they uh, economically interact has changed fundamentally associated with the pandemic. And, And it's the stuff that we were just talking about. People don't shop in the same way as before. They maybe are not going to go out to as many restaurants as they did previously. And and I think all those things put together mean that it's going to take a while for the economy and businesses to adapt to the changed landscape of the economy. And so it will take just a while for new businesses to spring up that fill the gap in areas where there is increased demand and for people to move away from the old areas in which they worked in There's been a public argument between people like the governor who say we need to keep the economy open as much as we can. We don't need to have these strong lockdowns. And the other side of that argument is we need to lock it all down, get the virus under control, and then we'll worry about the economy. Do you think the strategy that's been used in Arizona has worked well overall for the state, especially from an economic standpoint, which is your forte? This, this is sort of thing where you have to balance a lot of different aspects of the pandemic in coming up with a sensible answer. If you put everything else to, up to one side and just looked at the economy, you'd have to say that we've done remarkably well compared to some other areas in the US or 
um, on the planet, we've only experienced a slight reduction in terms of economic output, or we're guessing that we did, for 2020. And what we're expecting is the economy to sort of bump back up over the next year or so to get to where we would have been, is as it were, 12 months before. At the end of 2020, we'll be where we will be at the end of 2021. So we will only really have lost about 2.5% of growth. And that's remarkable given when you think about the effect of the pandemic and the number of deaths and cases of in the state. Most businesses that can uh, stay open have stayed open. We didn't go into a strict lockdown. That would probably have reduced the number of deaths and cases, but it would have had a more severe impact in terms of the economic output. That was Tim James. He's the director of research and consulting with the Seidman Research Institute at Arizona State University. So what are the factors that make people behave one way or another during the pandemic? We talked with John Ruiz, an associate professor of psychology at the University of Arizona. We all know that, that, that human behavior involves a lot of psychology. And I think, if anything, COVID has really demonstrated how those things uh, come together. The desire to be around other people, the importance of that, and the loss that people feel when that's not available. The experience of, of isolation, um, of having to behave in within certain strict parameters for a long period of time and the effects that takes. As we start to see cases drop and the vaccine rollout continue to pick up steam, how might that change you know, the calculus for people on when they feel it's safe? Will people start to ignore the things we're supposed to be doing, the social distancing, the mask wearing, the washing of hands, if they feel safer? You use the word calculus, which I think is... is is a very accurate term. People do a calculus. They do a, you know, essentially a an appraisal or an evaluation of their level of risk uh, constantly. We do this constantly throughout the day as we're walking down the sidewalk. You know, does somebody appear to be a risk factor for us? Are they coughing? Do they show any illness signs? The introduction of the vaccine will change the calculus for a lot of people. A lot of folks will begin to wonder: Is that their golden ticket? Is it a, a pass to now behave um, back in quote unquote normal? Uh, ways again. Uh, and so as people get those vaccines, um, it, we will obviously see a, a change in, in the other sort of compensatory behaviors as they reevaluate their level of risk. As we get to the point where the numbers say we can all maybe begin to return what we called normal a year ago, will people have fear, do you think, going into a, a grocery store? Um, if they haven't been in one or maybe a crowded store or a concert hall or things like that, because we haven't been together really in big groups now for a year. Yeah. You know, I think, there, I think there's two aspects to that. One is people just naturally have sort of fallen into what I would call sort of three categories. Um, there's the alls, the sums and the nevers, the alls, you know, engage in vigilant behavior and in, and in these various, uh, mitigation efforts all the time, the sums do it some of the time you know, perhaps when more convenient, um, but there are certainly times when they may not do it or they may forget to do it. Uh, and then there's the nevers, the ones who perhaps felt invulnerable or were um, uh, pushing against uh, some perceived uh, conformity. People are going to feel a little out of practice for a while around being around other people. And there's, I think, going to be a natural degree of sort of social awkwardness that will happen in the early days. People will uh, go into some of these things rather gingerly, essentially sort of rehabituating to life amongst other people. 
what can people do right now to mentally take care of themselves? The old example is, um, for anybody who's ever flown on a plane, the first instructions you get when you get on the airplane is that when the mask drops, put your mask on first. Take care of yourself. You can't take care of others unless you yourself are taken care of. People, uh, to the extent that they're able, uh, find a moment in time each day, perhaps, uh, an hour where they work on thinking about positive memories, positive experiences. If you, if you like a particular food, have that food during that moment. If you like a particular TV show, do that. Uh, call and text with friends. I mean, people, are, people are, again, being resilient and finding these outlets. And if they're not naturally occurring with you, perhaps sometimes it's, it's okay to, to force it a little bit, make it become your new habit. In those moments that you can control, those positive effects can have repercussions and reverberations throughout the rest of your day. We've seen throughout this year um, some unequal distribution, be it of resources or of impact, especially on communities of color being very hard hit by this virus. Now we're facing those same challenges on equitable vaccine distribution. How does that impact, for example, the Latino community here in Southern Arizona? The Latino community has has typically had uh, enjoyed quite good health overall. Uh, this has contributed to something that's often referred to as the Hispanic health paradox, that despite disadvantages in, say, resources or economic status, uh, Latino health, is, Latinos tend to have a longevity that's about three and a half years longer than, say, non-Hispanic whites. But there's a point at which um, access to resources uh, and exposure can overwhelm even resilience factors. And I think one thing that has happened in this context uh, is that COVID has really magnified uh, the disparities that exist. Uh, for example, uh, the uneven levels of exposure to uh, COVID. Latinos are more likely to be frontline workers uh, or essential workers. The jobs that, that have to be done in order for you know, the basic society to run. They may not have the resources to retreat out of an area um, during a time of, of high risk. Uh, and so those things are going to contribute to a higher incidence of disease. And then that tends to be coupled then with lack of resources, differences in access to healthcare, and even the quality of care accessed. And as a result, then we see uh, the latest CDC data, which came out on just a week ago. Uh, the number of cases compared to non-Hispanic whites for Latinos is about 30% higher. The hospitalization rate is about 3.2 times higher. And the death rate is more than double for the Latino community. That was John Ruiz, an associate professor of psychology at the University of Arizona and president of the Behavioral Medicine Research Council. And that's the buzz for this week. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Vanessa Ontiveros is our production assistant. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, and Duncan Moon is the interim news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.